Welcome to On Strike, a production of Workers Strike Back. I'm Bia Lacombe. Shama will be back with us next week. Just two weeks ago, California was hit by devastating, unprecedented storms. The National Weather Service in San Francisco issued its first ever hurricane force wind warning since records have been kept. And then Los Angeles received more than 60% of an entire year's rainfall in one day. The highest part of our house was our kitchen island, and that's where we were sitting on top of until we were able to get out safely. The news keeps getting worse because it looks like another similarly intense storm is likely to return to California this weekend. The planet just had its hottest year on record in 2023, and this past January was the warmest ever recorded. The crucial 1.5 degrees Celsius benchmark that scientists have warned about for decades, the benchmark that the Climate Paris Agreement was meant to prevent, has been breached. Writing in the journal Biosciences last October, an international group of climate researchers spanning North America, Europe, and Asia described the crisis facing the world in stark language, saying, quote, As scientists, we are increasingly being asked to tell the public the truth about the crises we face in simple and direct terms. The truth is that we are shocked by the ferocity of the extreme weather events in 2023. We are afraid of the uncharted territory that we have now entered, end quote. The question of how to avert the impending climate catastrophe and what it will take to dramatically change course in order to salvage a livable planet is absolutely central to building the overall working class fight back internationally against capitalism. What's clear is that the capitalist elite have completely failed to even begin to address the crisis and in fact have been doubling down with trillions more dollars in corporate handouts for fossil fuels. It's important that as part of the demands of workers strike back, We've said that working people need to organize to win a massive green jobs program that can employ millions of workers in clean energy. But before we get started, I want to talk about the Worker Strike Back membership drive. Become a member now to help ensure Worker Strike Back can continue to organize to rebuild a fighting labor movement and that On Strike can continue to bring you coverage from a wide range of issues from a working class perspective that you won't find on mainstream media. OnStrike doesn't run any ads, we don't accept any corporate money, and we rely entirely on donations from working people to support our work. You're not alone, right? You're not just sitting on your couch, doom scrolling, um, reading all these different terrible news stories alone, that there are thousands and in reality millions of working class people who feel just as frustrated and also want to see a path forward, who know that higher wages, high quality health care, and high quality housing are totally possible. We're building on the example of the past decade in Seattle on a national scale to widen and strengthen the class struggle. Who here wants to be a part of that movement? Go to workerstrikeback.org and click on become a member. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe to this channel. In the face of climate disaster, how do working and young people build a fight back? What will it take to win victories on the scale of what is so urgently needed? To discuss this, we're excited to have Jed, a Los Angeles resident and worker strike back activist, here with us today. Welcome, Jed. Hey, happy to be here. So as climate change caused by the capitalist system heats up the planet, Southern California has seen some really dramatic impacts, including experiencing far more severe droughts than ever before. But now the same region is also seeing intense extremes on the other end, with unprecedented torrential rain, an atmospheric river, and life-threatening floods. Can you tell us more about what's been happening with the recent extreme weather in California and how it connects to climate change? Yeah, definitely. 
So first of all, a warming climate affects water in several key ways, right? It, warm air is going to evaporate water. It sucks moisture out of the earth, dries out vegetation. Um, all this leads to drought. And at the same time, warmer temperature means that air can hold more moisture. So this means when moisture does get released, there's more of it. We get more intense downpours, um, and often that's going to lead to flooding. So the rain and the flooding in California this month was brought by two back-to-back -back atmospheric rivers known as Pineapple Express events. Atmospheric River, for people who don't know, is a long channel of very concentrated moisture in the atmosphere. In the case of the Pineapple Express, it transports water from the tropics near Hawaii up to higher latitudes on the West Coast. And these things move an enormous quantity of water. Um, I've seen estimates of 27 times the amount of water in the Mississippi River. Um, and when this moisture actually breaks land, hits the mountains on the California coast, it gets pushed upwards. That moisture cools and condenses, um, and all that moisture gets dumped as precipitation. You can think of it kind of like squeezing a sponge. So intense flooding, it, it doesn't solve the drought problem. Um, we get too much water all at once. The ground gets saturated. It's kind of like overwatering a potted plant. And it's a problem, too, if most of our water for the year comes in just a few intense storms. But climate change is going to make atmospheric rivers continue to become more extreme. Um, and this quick shift from one extreme to another, from drought to flood, sometimes called weather whiplash, um, this is also likely to increase as the world warms. Scientists are predicting that by the end of the century, um, Southern California, we could see the frequency between these transitions doubling. Yeah, I mean, it's totally terrifying. And I know that over 800,000 people faced power outages during the storm and in the days afterward. So what's been the response from local governments to mitigate such a disaster? Yeah, it's a good question. They've done some of the standard things that you would expect. Um, I think California, in some ways, sort of prides itself on, on, uh, on being used to this kind of um, weather happening. right? So, so Governor Newsom mobilized 8,300 personnel, what they call emergency response assets, um, you know, responding to floods, landslides, dangerous roads. They put a few million sandbags out, um, prepared some food and shelter uh, for people who will be displaced. But right at the end of the day, this is all kind of 11th hour, last minute preparation, right? What are the longer term, uh, more systemic preparations they could be making? It's kind of all you can do when you have, like you're talking about these power outages, right? Pacific Gas and Electric, it's a for-profit utility company. They haven't put in the investment that they need to to weatherproof the grid. Right. PG&E has for a long time been notorious for maintaining their equipment poorly, um, prioritizing shareholder profit over people's safety. And it's been understood for a long time that undergrounding power lines would help avoid these kinds of power knockouts and, and you know, fires. And this year, they're actually going to, you know, they're, they're planning on passing that cost off to consumers in a big way. Just months ago, uh, the California Public Utilities Commission approved a rate hike. It'll amount to probably hundreds uh, per year per consumer. Um, for $13.5 billion in undergrounding funds, right, to put these lines underground. Just for reference, the company made $18 billion last year. They made over $16 billion the year before, over $16 billion the year before that. So the money, the money's there. And yeah, for-profit utility company um, is just cutting corners and, uh, and, and, and planning to pass the, the costs off to consumers uh, for the things that they should be taking responsibility for. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, in crises like this, it's somehow always working and poor people who have to foot the bill. And I mean, that brings me to something else I wanted to ask you, which is that 
you know, there were reports of even the wealthiest neighborhoods of Los Angeles being affected by mudslides. Uh, but we know that rich people can easily take off to a vacation home or get away to a fancy hotel when something like this happens. What's, you know, besides having to, you know, deal with power outages and um, then having to, you know, foot the bill for what's going to happen with these electric companies, what's the reality of a storm like this for regular working people? Well, rain or shine, most working people have to physically go to work. In California, Southern California especially, lots of people drive to work. Um, they're risking getting into accidents during this kind of weather, getting stuck in flooded areas. And this is, you know, while the authorities are advising people to actually stay home, lots of people can't do that. And if we look at the L.A. school district, for instance, it was largely open. Only two schools were actually closed um, on the Monday of the rainstorm. And, you know, for anyone taking public transit, certainly they're also seriously at risk. Um, massive transit delays, um, things like that. At home, like you said, power got knocked out for lots of people. And the homes of regular working people, um, you know, are just as um, prone to being hit by, by mudslides, floods, um, the same things that you're, you know, uh, that the news covered um, wealthy homes um, being hit by. But working people can't escape, like you said, like wealthy people. And, uh, and when they need to re make repairs to those homes, they often don't have um, the money to do that. And there's, I mean, I know with a lot of these disasters, there's been, you know, news coverage of people, even when you have homeowners insurance that should cover these kinds of things, there are ways that the insurance companies can sort of like uh, basically wiggle out of it or like it turns out you didn't actually have the specific kind of coverage that you needed for this. So in, in so many of these crises, working people are left with, you know, probably a house that's unlivable and then no money or going into insane debt to try to, to fix things um, or having to like leave the area altogether. And I mean, it's shocking that schools weren't even closed, what you were just saying. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even hear about that. But yeah, it sounds like overall just a really um, harrowing experience. And then, of course, there's more set to come um, in, the, in the coming days. Stepping back a little bit, part of the explanation for these really drastic weather patterns is the natural weather phenomenon known as El Nino. Um, there's been a lot of focus on that in the corporate media. They're even talking about a super El Nino. Areas in the northern United States and Canada become drier and warmer. Central America is hit by drought. And intense tropical storms also become much more likely on the west coast of the Americas. But isn't it the case that El Nino and these kind of weather patterns are only exacerbating what's really behind this, uh, which is the climate crisis? Yeah, well, El Nino is a recurring phenomenon. It comes every some, something between two and seven years. It's not a regular pattern. Um, but one of the results of El Nino is warmer sea surface temperatures in the eastern Pacific, which is where this atmospheric river um, flows through. So certainly that's going to contribute more moisture to the atmospheric river. It's going to cause more rainfall. But you're right. The long-term trend underlying this whole El Nino-La Nina cycle um, is the steadily increasing temperature caused by global warming. So, you know, corporate media may sometimes put an emphasis on El Nino as the, the cause or the key cause uh, to diminish the urgency of, of addressing global warming. But if we look, you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now, regardless of where we are in the El Nino cycle, average temperature is going up. That's going to cause our atmospheric rivers to become more and more intense. Um, and until global warming is reversed, that's just a guarantee. Well, and 
a hemisphere away, right, in another place known for temperate weather, massive wildfires have engulfed the country of Chile and killed more than 120 people. And this has also been tied to the El Nino phenomenon, but of course, yeah, underlying it um, is the, the warming climate. Around the world, disasters like these are worsening. Uh, can you talk about the range of impacts that are going to be faced by really billions of ordinary people unless some drastic solutions are put in place? Sure. I mean, floods and droughts are not all. They'll be, they'll be widespread, but there's, there's much more. As regions dry out, we're going to see increased wildfire risk. Um, and in recent years, you know, we've had massive fires across the world from dry places like the western U.S. to the Amazon, eastern Canada, which, you know, last year it, it enveloped the whole northeast in smoke. We can expect more and more heat waves, um, including in regions of the world that are typically cooler, like northern Europe. You know, hotter parts, parts of the world can become more and more uninhabitable for big parts of the year. And, you know, if we look at the implications of all this weather on on water and food for people, increased drought can lead to famine, um, can lead to the depletion of fresh water supply. And all of this means that millions of people are likely going to be displaced and we're going to see more and more migration as a result of, of climate impacts. So we've talked about, you know, many dimensions of the climate crisis, but of course the billion dollar question is what needs to be done to prevent all of these horrific disasters that, you know, you just laid out. First, can you tell us more about the monumental failure of the political establishment and capitalism itself and even beginning to address the crisis? And how rather than urgently take steps on the scale needed to turn things around, the billionaire class, especially in industrial powers like China and the U.S., have actually doubled down on carbon emissions? Yeah, I mean, so the science has been very clear uh, for decades on, on the reality of climate change. Um, and the political establishment has just been moving in slow motion. You know, the extent that politicians have ever started to pay lip service to the issue of um, fighting climate change, it's only been through the pressure of, of you know, movements of people on the ground. And, yeah, this sluggishness, um, it's linked directly to, I mean, it's not, it's, it's resistance. It's linked directly to the power of the fossil fuel industry um, and the needs of the capitalist class as a whole to continue business as usual so that they can keep raking in profits. The U.S. and China, they both have substantial reserves of fossil fuels located domestically um, that they fully intend to use. Um, and especially now, as the um, inter-imperialist rivalry between these two powers heats up, um, they're going to use the rhetoric of national security and self-reliance to justify the expansion um, of oil drilling and, and coal plants. What needs to be done to change things? We often hear from political pundits that the real problem is the ordinary people don't get it, that they just don't see the urgency of the climate threat. Do you think that's true, that there is a lack of understanding or desire by working people to fight against climate change? And if not, then what do you think is really needed in order to force capitalist governments to change course? Yeah, no, I, I think working people totally understand the urgency of the climate threat. Um, right, we're living it every year. These heat waves, cold snaps, droughts, hurricanes, all this extreme weather that we've been talking about. People understand that this stuff is getting worse, right? Like if we if we look at the population as a whole, almost 200 million people a year are affected by extreme weather, um, and more than half the world's population is at risk at any time. And you know, it's not just weather, right? The health conditions um, that lots of working people face living in congested cities living near fossil fuel plants. These are all things people are very aware of. 
I think a lot of people, especially young people, recognize the enormity of the climate crisis. Um, and there can be a certain feeling of resignation um, about the inevitability of climate change. In comparison, maybe countless other problems that they're facing seem uh, kind of more solvable. But, you know, like I was saying before, um, we know that capitalist governments are not going to act on climate change um, without coming under serious pressure. We need a mass movement um, demanding climate action um, that's not willing to accept um, the sluggishness, the largely empty rhetoric that gets thrown around by the political establishment. Yeah, in terms of movements, I think it's important that we talk about, uh, you know, one example, which is the Sunrise Movement, which I, I do think is an important example of the direction that the climate movement has taken. Back in 2018, when they launched, there was real excitement among thousands of young people who wanted to get organized against big oil and gas. During the 2018 midterms, Sunrise worked to oust candidates who would not refuse funding from the fossil fuel industry. Fast forward just a couple of years, and on their website, they say, quote, Sunrise helped ensure that climate would be a winning issue for Biden by deploying money, volunteers, and resources to have a major impact on youth turnout, including contacting more than 4 million potential voters on Biden's behalf across eight swing states ahead of the general election, end quote. And what they got for their efforts was Biden approving devastating oil drilling projects, including the Willow Project in Alaska. His policies have led to record-setting production of oil and gas in the U.S. last year. So can you talk about Sunrise's strategy when it comes to politicians like Biden and whether you think tying themselves at the hip to the Democratic Party is a smart move for the climate movement? Um, I think it's a trap. And I think it's left a lot of activists really frustrated with Biden. Right, The Sunrise movement argued that by campaigning hard for Biden, it would raise the profile of climate change in Biden's campaign um, and give him a mandate to push through an agenda to fight climate change. But in reality, you know, just like countless other issues that Biden made promises on, um, he was never serious about actually fighting for it. So now, right, moving into 2024, the Sunrise Movement is tied up in a fight within the Democratic Party to reelect the squad, many of whom are facing right-wing primary challengers backed by APAC, you know, backed by conservative, Democrat, and even Republican donors. But again, as we've seen, um, members of the squad aren't willing to act in a united way to force the Democrats to take action. If we look back to the beginning of Biden's term, um, Democrats had slim majorities in the House and Senate, um, and the squad held the balance of power, which they could have used as leverage. Um, and even more critically, they could have used their platforms to rally a mass movement that could you know, fight for a Green New Deal, fight for climate um, action. But instead, what they've done is they've provided left cover for the Democratic Party establishment. For the most part, they're submitting to party unity. And it's actually been the right wing of the Democratic Party, right? Cole Barron, Joe Manchin, who throws a fit and gets his way, um, as we've seen in the watering down of the Inflation Reduction Act. Instead, you know, if we had the Sunrise Movement channeling their electoral support towards politically independent candidates who were, you know, really bound, tied to the movement, then we could we could have the movement providing um, the backup for, you know, for those candidates that they actually need to take on the Democratic Party. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you mentioned the squad um, because I do think it's really important to talk about, you know, politicians, even though they don't get fossil fuel money, you know, from from like big oil and gas lobbying. They aren't like, you know, they aren't Joe Manchin, like you said, oil baron, um, but they're not building a fight against climate change. They're not building a fight against 
that that's the the kind of fight that's actually needed to take on the enormous power of the oil and gas lobby. And so it is a problem when they're so tied to the Democratic Party and then because of uh, conforming to what the party leadership is demanding, they don't build the kind of mass movements you're talking about. They don't, I mean, I can't remember the last time AOC tweeted about a Green New Deal. It seems like that has basically, you know, died. And so it's also a huge problem for the climate movement to be tied to politicians who won't put up the necessary fight. And so, yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I also wanted to talk about a, a different kind of approach that some environmental groups like Just Stop Oil have used, um, things like defacing famous paintings and buildings with orange paint to bring attention to the need for climate action. Do you think that these are effective tactics and, and what's the impact of them? No, I, I don't think they're effective. I think on balance, they're really counterproductive actually. Right, the intent of these tactics is to shock, it's to dramatize, to capture media attention at all costs. But frankly, it's not true that any press is good press. We, right, if, if, we, if we accept that it's gonna take a truly mass movement to force action on climate change, which is what I would argue, um, then if we look at these types of tactics, these types of tactics are often individual, small group actions that isolate themselves from a broader movement. Um, and they can be so you know, extreme that they actually push people away, uh, push people away who actually do care about climate change. And I think you know, another thing is that they can send the message to people who might, maybe could have been activists um, that this is what you need to do to be an activist, to be a part of making change. And most people are not prepared to do those things right now, right? So I think uh, shifting a little bit to um, talking about what should the role of the working class be in avoiding climate catastrophe? Right, the working class has an enormous role to play in avoiding climate disaster. In fact, I'd say the decisive role. The only people who benefit um, from climate change at the end of the day are the bosses, the fat cats who are in charge of companies um, that make profit from pulling oil and gas out of the ground, um, but also companies that ignore climate impact in other ways, right? They transport products to different places around the world because it costs them less for people to, you know, assemble things in one place. And so, you know, while the bosses benefit from climate change, the rest of us lose. And so it's totally natural that the working class as a whole should band together and fight for a complete retooling of our energy system. And the working class has the power um, to, to grind production to a halt. This is the biggest leverage that we have over the bosses and the political establishment who serve them. And I think a mass strike by the working class, a mass climate strike, is an outcome that the bosses fear even more than global warming itself. So it really seems like what's plaguing the uh, climate movement right now is, I mean, tactical questions are very important, but really there are these deeper political questions underlying some of the problems that we're seeing. And, you know, you were talking about uh, politicians and uh, we were talking about the movement being tied to the Democratic Party. So I want to ask what you think about I mean, we talk a lot on On Strike about the need for a new party for working people and what you think um, a new party could bring to uh, the fight for, you know, real meaningful changes to uh, the, you know, the energy system, to uh, society that would actually address climate change. Yeah, well, I think a new party, um, a working class party, um, would be able to refuse um, any you know, connections to the fossil fuel industry, um, but also any connections to um, corporate interests in general, which 
do have an interest in cutting corners on climate um, at the end of the day. I think also a new party um, could base itself in the strength of a movement. That's going to that's going to be what what makes change in, in, at the end of the day. Um, when we look at the Democratic Party, they're completely afraid um, of any uh, mass action being taken, um, you know, by movements in the streets, uh, by the working class. In a new party that uh, that actually used its position to encourage mass movements, uh, to encourage strike action, um, to you know build for uh, climate demands within the unions, um, this would be something that um, you know the political establishment, the Democratic Party, would never do. And that you know that's the type of action that we actually need to to achieve um, to achieve change um, and to to push back against um, against uh, climate change. Yeah, absolutely. I think having politicians who are actually accountable to the movement's demands, you know, and using their platforms, like you said, to to call mass rallies and to to push through, to use leverage to push through legislation. Um, and so these, I mean, these are things that could certainly make steps forward in terms of our addressing climate change. But, you know, it's common knowledge now that we don't have time. We don't have much time at all to halt and potentially even start to reverse global warming if we want to prevent even more horrific disasters down the line with, you know, entire areas becoming completely unlivable. Do you think that the necessary changes to halt climate change can be achieved under the capitalist system? No, I don't think so. Right. As as we've said, under capitalism, it's taken decades for the political establishment to even recognize that a transition away from fossil fuels is necessary. Um, and again, that's because of the power of the fossil fuel industry. Today, oil and gas are still expanding. But to reverse global warming, we're going to need rapid, like really rapid expansion um, of clean energy production. We're going to need a power distribution system that can accommodate um, intermittent power production like wind and solar. We're going to need to expand public transit to seriously cut down on our dependence on personal vehicles. Um, you know, we're going to need to drastically change supply chains. And we, when we look at this whole set of all the changes that need to happen, um, it's not profitable. Um, market logic is not going to make this happen. So we actually need to remove the obstacle of profit-driven production and a profit-driven economy, because that's what it is. It's an obstacle. Um, we're going to need an economy that's not based on the prioritization of profit, um, but is based on the planning, on planning for human need and, and planning for sustainability. And I think as a first step, you know, we can say that that's going to that's going to mean taking companies into public ownership um, because, uh, you know, so long as they're uh, beholden to private shareholders, they're going to have to keep, um, you know, prioritizing profit. But, um, you know, if we take those things into democratic public ownership, um, they can be run for the needs of people um, without considering, um, you know, the needs of just a small number of shareholders. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by democratic public ownership of the fossil fuel industry? Yeah, sure. Uh, so we we can't control what we don't own, right? So so long as the fossil fuel companies um, are in private hands, they're gonna they have the you know the the ability to keep on drilling, to keep on uh, pulling fossil fuels out of the ground. If we took those things into public ownership, we could put a stop to that. And then, yeah, of course, like uh, be able to then retool for clean energy to um, have like a, you know, a transition that uh, is workable for the vast majority of the population to, um, you know, use the kind of uh, energy, uh, the clean energy uh, technology that already exists that we could rapidly scale up. Um, that I assume would be, you know, part of that whole plan. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of that right now is not is not profitable. And so we're not going to see companies really pursuing that, um, you know, when their short term interests are to make as much money as they can. Um, so by taking that into public ownership, um, yeah, we can we can develop that technology further. We can we can scale it up um, and and not worry about how much money it is or isn't making. So just my last question, I wanted to ask you to go back a little bit to the question of uh, the climate movement. So it's clear that, you know, we really need the climate movement needs to tie uh, itself to, uh, you know, working class movements and, and methods of working class struggle. Um, what do you think that uh, that looks like today? Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, organizations like Workers Strike Back are really dedicating themselves to building a fighting labor movement, um, right, that will fight on this class program that that understands that right on climate change climate change is something that only the bosses benefit and workers don't and that you know we ought to stand together um, to to fight back against that um, we want to build a mass movement that you know that challenges uh, the political establishment um, and the boss class um, to to win things that you know that we all as a class need I'm also a socialist and my understanding of class struggle as a necessity um, to fight climate change um, you know, comes from socialist politics. And I, I think if you agree um, that, uh, you know, that that workers have the power um, to change society, to fight climate change, um, you know, through through acting together as a class. Yeah, if you agree that um, that we need to take the top 500 um, companies into public ownership um, in order to retool our economy on a, you know, a, a clean basis um, to transition our um, you know, our energy system from, from fossil fuels um, to clean energy, um, then, yeah, you should check out uh, socialistalternative.org, um, uh, see what we're all about, and, and consider joining. Thank you so much, Jed, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. OnStrike is a production of Worker Strike Back, a nationwide organization fighting on working class demands like a $25 an hour minimum wage, union jobs, Medicare for all, and against discrimination and oppression. Worker Strike Back is also calling for a new party for working people because neither the Republican Party nor the Democratic Party represents us. Don't forget to hit like on this video and subscribe to our channel. Find out more at workerstrikeback.org and donate. And look for us on Patreon to support our work. On Strike is a broadcast entirely for working people, funded entirely by working people. Solidarity.